As the days of King David were coming to an end, he spoke to his son Solomon, saying to him, I am going the way of all flesh. Take courage and be a man. Keep the mandate of the Lord. Walk in his ways. Observe his statutes, his precepts, his judgments, and his testimonies, as they are written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in whatever you do, wherever you turn. And David rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. Then Solomon sat upon the throne of his father David and established his sovereignty. Welcome to the 23rd episode of the Western Traditions Podcast. This episode will be about the history of the Hebrews from the time after the biblical flood down to the high point of their ancient kingdom in Israel. Before beginning, though, I want to thank everyone who has accompanied me on this journey into the past. I began the podcast over a year ago, and I'm still trying to reach what I planned on being our starting point with the history of the Greeks, but I think that the study of our Western tradition's roots in the ancient world has been well worth the, di- the digression. I hope that you feel the same way. I believe that this series on the ancient world will finish up with episode 26, which will be a sort of coda or appendix to the series and cover things left out or in need of correction. After that episode, there will be a brief pause in publication of new material as I revamp the website, western-traditions.org. That's western-traditions.org. And I prepare to sell merchandise. I hope you're looking forward to getting a Western Traditions t-shirt. In the meantime, I hope that you can make your way over to the website at western-traditions.org, check out some old episodes, see some helpful maps, and some recommended books, and if you want, you can help support production of these of these episodes through PayPal or Patreon. So I want to thank all of you who have already contributed, and if any of you, contributors or not, have ideas or requests about future episodes, please email them to me or leave the suggestion in a comment box on the website. If you are telling a friend about the podcast, let them know that you can listen on Spotify, on podbean.com, on Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, or on any Alexa-enabled device. So thanks again for listening. On with the podcast. It is going to be my longest yet, so you might want to brew some coffee or grab a snack before we get started. Here we go. This episode attempts to describe a unique force or element in our Western traditions. Unique in one way because the central religion of the West, Christianity, is not in fact a Western religion, but an Eastern religion, which developed out of Judaism, which, as I hope to show in this episode, has its own roots in Egyptian and Mesopotamian religions. For examples of authentic Western religions, you have to look back to Greek, Roman, and Norse mythologies, or the religion of the Druids. All of those religions are Indo-European in origin. They are all polytheistic, worshiping gods assigned to every aspect of the human endeavor, from birth to death, and they are expressive of many concepts and ideas which are actually antithetical to Jewish and Christian ideologies, holding distinct views on issues such as violence, sex, child-rearing, the value of life, the meaning or meaninglessness of death, and so on. 
All these authentically Western religions are essentially gone, though modern Christians in the West continue to cling, often unknowingly, to many ideas and traditions derived from these extinct belief systems. If one were to have been able to observe the cultures of Europe 2,000 years ago and to try to extrapolate from those conditions and religions that existed at the time, you would never have imagined a time like the Middle Ages, nor a present like ours. Surely you would have thought one or more of those existing mythologies might have prevailed. The Roman Empire had already been quite successful in assimilating the religions of the people over whom they ruled. They had likened their own gods to those of the Greeks, as we, though as we shall see in the third series of podcasts, which will deal with the comprehensive history of the Romans, the Roman imagination of the divine world was actually quite distinct from that of the Greeks. The Greeks. But anyway, the Romans, by the time of Christ, had embraced even the Egyptian gods and sought to equate them with their own, as had the Greeks many centuries before. In their encounters with the Northmen in ancient Germany, the Romans had even seen a likeness between the Norse pantheon of gods and their own. You can see these equivalencies expressed in our modern names for the days of the week in English. The Latin languages, for example, call the fourth day of the week Mercules or Mercredi or some version of Mercury, the god of commerce, travel, luck, and communication. Northern languages, such as English, call that day Woden's Day, after the Norse god Odin or Woden. Again, the fifth day of the week is called Judy or some version of Jupiter, while in the northern languages it is Thursday or some version of Thor's Day, Thor being another of the Norse gods. So it would have been very believable to imagine a religious future for Europe, which involves some amalgamation of all those mythologies. That a monotheistic religion derived from Mesopotamian theology, would sweep the continent and come to define its philosophy and institutions would most likely have been unbelievable to nearly all observers. But it happened this way. Christianity became a defining characteristic, nay, the defining characteristic of Western culture. It sustained the various ethnicities and races of Europe through the darkest of times. It propped up kings, it moved armies, it inspired incredible art and architecture, as a faith, it became so central to our Western traditions that, in its present decrepitude in modern society, many wonder if the possible demise of Christianity will simultaneously bring about the end of the West as a whole. We come to such questions more direct, directly in the eighth and final series of this podcast about contemporary times. In the meantime, this may seem like a lengthy digression that distracts from the essence of my usual introduction. However, it is not. With this episode, I begin the first venture into matters that remain, to this day, close to perhaps 4,000 years after Abraham may have come out of Mesopotamia and followed a quest in obedience to an obscure Canaanite god. These matters remain of the most central importance to Western identity. God, the Bible, Jesus, salvation, resurrection, eternity, morality, the meaning of life. I found it difficult to know what to name this episode, how to begin this episode, and I found it difficult to compose the script. There is so much subject matter, and so much of it is critical to the Western mythos as it is constituted today. I have decided to spread out the story of Judaism, as it is rendered in the Bible, over the last few episodes of this podcast series. This episode will deal with the story of Israel directly, from their primeval origins through their Egyptian capti captivity and on to the height of the briefly lived kingdom of David. The next two episodes will del delve into matters in Israel as they encountered disastrously Mesopotamian cultures that sought to control their land in its passage to Egypt and its accession to the Mediterranean. 
Ultimately, the Greeks will come and bring an end to the period covered by the Old Testament. We will return to the period of the New Testament during the third series about the Roman Empire, probably a couple years from now. So I'm going to tell the story today in two ways, reflecting our divided modern perspective on the Bible. With every portion of the story, I will begin with the traditional biblical view of the tale, rendering faithfully Abraham's interactions with his deity and Moses' account of meeting the Godhead in a burning bush. I will also afterward consider these stories through the eyes of archaeology and science, meditating on whether Judaism developed its defining religious texts in Egypt or Canaan or Mesopotamia, whether they believed in one God or many, whether the the Exodus ever happened, and if the Bible was composed by Moses or by a series of writers and editors comparatively later in the Old Testament period. So without further ado, let us begin the story of Israel and ultimately the story of Western Christianity. Throughout the length of this first series on the history of the ancient world, which preceded specifically Western history, I have made reference to the opening text of the Bible, the first 11 chapters, that portion which for Jews and Christians applies to all human history, such as the stories of Adam and Eve and their children, and Noah and the flood, and so on. To continue this story and begin it in earnest, I will turn your attention, like a preacher, to the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis, where we come into first contact with the namesake of the Abrahamic religions that underline the drama, even of our modern history. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your kinfolk, and your father's house, for the land which I will show you. I will make a great nation of you. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you shall be a blessing. I will bless them that bless you and curse them that curse you, and you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. His name was originally Abram, not Abraham. We will come to the purpose and meaning of his eventual name change later. Abram, according to the Bible, came out of Mesopotamia, specifically from the city of Ur, a Sumerian city which dates back all the way to the time of Gilgamesh. It is possible that Abram lived around the time of Hammurabi, the Babylonian lawgiver, depending on the chronology that you accept. Essentially, then, Abram, the father of the Jewish nation, the first named Hebrew in scripture, is descended from the same people about whom we have already learned, the melting pot of Sumerians, Akkadians, Babylonians, Assyrians, Elamites, Semites, Amorites, and so on, that had thrived and struggled in the land between two rivers since the beginning of recorded human history. According to the book of Genesis, Abram moved westward out of Mesopotamia in stages with his father and his brothers and their households. He was a pastoralist, leading animal herds wherever he went, carrying, as pastoralists do, his wealth with him in the form of the meat, wool, milk, horns, and other materials provided by livestock. Abraham's migration, Abram's migration, that is, according to the text, was initiated by his father Haran, but it turned into a divinely inspired quest. Early in the 12th chapter of Genesis, as cited prior to the break, God speaks directly to Abram, as he did with many of the patriarchs. The term patriarch refers to the important men, the heads of the family of Israel that appear in the Bible, specifically and primarily in the book of Genesis. 
So God speaks to Abram directly and tells him that he, the Almighty, has chosen Abram out of all men to be the father of a great nation. These first six verses from the 12th chapter of Genesis are packed with meaning, not only for Jews and Christians, but also for our purposes in this podcast. Let's unravel a little of what we find here and see what it can tell us about the historical Jewish faith, as well as what it can tell us about our own traditions. The first matter that should come to our attention is the concept of being chosen. This, perhaps, is not completely alien to what we have discovered so far in human religious history. Certainly heroes such as Gilgamesh were perceived to have been chosen, and political leaders such as Sargon of Akkad and Akhenaten in Egypt definitely portrayed themselves as the chosen spokesperson for their gods. But these chosen ones, these special men, had always been great leaders, powerful warriors, men perceived to have divine blood in their veins, so after all, maybe it was not that significant that they had been chosen by the gods. Abram is unique at this point in religious history in that he is nobody special in the eyes of the world. He is neither king nor the son of a king, and there is no divine blood in his veins. Now, one who reads his Bible and believes might disagree and point out Abraham's pedigree, his descent from Adam and from Noah and so on, but according to the Bible, all men and women are descended from these individuals, so Abram is really nothing special in that regard. So why is he chosen? It is important not to get the timeline confused here when answering the the question. One might be tempted, if he or she had prior knowledge of the Bible text, to say that God chose Abram for his faith. But Abram's demonstration of faith is later in life, after his selection. Yes, he demonstrated at least a little initial faith by going on the quest and leaving his homeland behind, but still he was chosen before that demonstration of faith. So there, there is a new issue in the context of ancient religion to delve into here. These spare lines of text from the Bible are going to have a much bigger impact on Western history as a whole than any of the pantheons, proclamations, and myths that we have discovered so far. Being chosen. Again and again, in both Old and New Testaments, men and women do not excel in life or accomplish great things by their own merit, by their own strength. It is all due to God, to God's choice to bring glory into their life. Humans may respond to these graces in a variety of ways, but it begins with God. I do not need to summarize or enumerate the number of times that this concept is reintroduced in the Bible. It will be evident throughout many coming podcasts how this perception of biblical heroes, and even the self-perception of common believers, how such an idea stirs and moves the monotheistic souls of Western religions. And there is much more to take note of in these opening lines in the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis, especially from the archaeological and historical perspective. Abram is a member of an ethnicity, the Hebrews, that appears here and there in the records of civilized nations in the ancient world. Called the Habiru in some Egyptian texts, they were related genetically to other Semitic groups that inhabited and had inhabited the region of Mesopotamia and Canaan for thousands of years. We can see even now, in my simple review of the past, how different tribes and groups of people moved back and forth over the land throughout these millennia. The Hyksos coming west into Egypt, the Amorites moving east into Babylonia, the Sea Peoples arriving in the Mediterranean from the north, and now the Hebrews moving west out of Mesopotamia to Canaan to the land of milk and honey. Abram, and presumably the rest of the Hebrews whom he represents in the text, comes as a pastoralist, a herdsman. Conflict would have been a fundamental part of his life. Herdsmen arriving in a region would have been both welcome and feared. 
they brought meat and animal skins and milk and all the products associated with livestock, and that would be an opportunity for trade and communication and so on. But such herdsmen were also wanderers, rootless people with no loyalty to the local status quo. They were potentially bandits. And truly, fear of such people was not groundless. Abram himself demonstrates the potential for trouble in the next few chapters of Genesis when he quickly converts all the men of his household, all those who serve him in managing the herds, he converts them all into an instant army of 300 men that chase down those who have captured Lot, his nephew, and defeat them in battle and liberate their prisoners, Lot among them. Recall the discussion in the episode on the Phoenicians, in which I discussed the way that traveling traders, whether they moved by ship or wagon or horse or on foot, all were ready at a moment's notice to defend themselves, and not that infrequently, take advantage of other travelers whom they encountered, especially if those travelers were in lesser numbers or not as well armed. The sailing ship that carried traders eager to sell their goods was also a ship full of pirates ready to pounce on vulnerable prey encountered by chance. And the same was true of those who was true of those who traveled by land, carrying their goods and wealth with them, say in the form of herd animals. Such men could quickly become a horde of enemies. Remember too that in the story of Abram's rescue of Lot, he mobilizes 318 men just from his own household. Just think of the size of an armed force that could be created off the cuff by traveling groups of interrelated herdsmen. In Abram's case, the force was used for good, to rescue a kinsman. But you had better believe that all the farmers and urban dwellers who became aware of an approaching group of nomadic herdsmen were preoccupied by their presence. And we can see this reflected in the story of Cain and Abel, already reviewed many episodes ago. In that story, Cain is the farmer and Abel is the pastoralist. And at the time of the writing of that story, clearly the pastoralists were the good guys, suffering at the hands of the ungrateful and parsimonious farmer in the form of Cain, who murdered poor innocent Abel and was, interestingly, punished by being forced to become a nomad himself. Truly, the depths of meaning in most biblical texts are ultimately unfathomable. Unfathomable. I could write a book just about the opening verses of this chapter in Genesis, and I'm sure that others have written such books, but we will not get any more bogged down in it here. Let it suffice to note simply that the Jews see in Abram their true forefather, the one who distinguishes them from the other peoples of the earth for the first time. All men, the Jewish and the Gentile, the good and the wicked, are descended from Noah, but the Jews are the descendants of Abraham. So he strikes out from Mesopotamia, initially with his father, later going to Canaan with his nephew Lot and the respective households, and in the following chapters, separating even from Lot and making his own way in the world alone, worshiping his God. Now, who is this God? What does he do? Over what realm of human life does he rule? How does he compare, you might ask yourself, to Zeus or Apollo or Odin or Marduk or Ra or Osiris? Or maybe you do, not, you do not ask yourself that question. Maybe, as it is for many of us, this God of Abraham's is simply God, the fundamental divine background to life, even if you are an atheist. We don't ask ourselves the same questions about this God, the God of the Jews and the Christians. We don't ask ourselves the same questions about him that we ask ourselves about Horus or Thor or Rama or Shiva or Juno or Poseidon. But maybe we should. Three and four thousand years ago, Abram's God was just another deity among many, just another competitor for the hearts and souls of men. His followers, and they are now legion, Consider him now to be the God of everything, the only God, he who sees and watches over all that is, but that was probably not the viewpoint of the early Jews. 
In the language of the text of the Bible, researchers can get some hints about who and what this deity was, this God guy. While modern translations will often just issue his name as God or the Lord, there are actually a variety of names used to describe Abram's God throughout the Bible in the Hebrew text. Among them are the names El, Elohim, El Shaddai, El Elyon, Yahweh, Yahweh Sabaoth, and so on. You might have noticed a certain term in there and recall it from a previous episode, El. This term simply means God in ancient Hebrew and in related languages from that time and region. The Phoenicians called one of their gods El, and the Phoenicians were Semites, like the Hebrews, and like the Carthaginians of later times. Again, I won't delve too far into the details of this connection, but it should be enough to note that the Hebrew god is somehow related to the other gods of this time and region. Without getting too theological in this episode, I would like to point out that there is a widely accepted thesis that the earliest books of the Bible, such as Genesis, are actually compositions pieced together from different authors. That one of these compositions called God El, and another called him Yahweh. Perhaps this is another sign that distinct ancient gods were merged to satisfy related ethnic groups coming together in Canaan as a political unity. More on that later. Sometimes the names seem redundant. El Shaddai simply means, apparently means God the Lord. Yahweh Sabaoth means Yahweh of hosts, and the hosts referred to means the armies, either of Israel or of the heavens. So there is a clear identification of this God as a God of war, though it does not necessarily, necessarily restrict his bailiwick just to armed conflict. And what does Yahweh mean anyway? This is a topic so weighted down with meaning that I will leave most of it for future episodes in which I will discuss the prophets of Israel and their exile of the Jews during the hegemony of the Assyrians, the Neo-Babylonians, and the Persians. However, I do want to make a note of something about this name before I proceed. Among most Jews, Orthodox Jews anyway, it is forbidden to speak this particular name of God. Yes, the name is so sacred that it is forbidden to say it aloud. In fact, God is sometimes referred to as simply the name to avoid pronouncing his moniker. In some circles, especially academic, this God, in the form of this name, is referred to as the Tetragrammaton, meaning the four letters, since ancient Hebrew does not have vowel sounds. And the name Yahweh, traditionally spelled in English Y-A-H-W-E-H, is written simply as Y-H-W-H in Hebrew, or rather spelled with the Hebrew letters that make those sounds in English. Adonai is also used to refer to God whenever this name appears in the biblical text. And Adonai simply means the Lord. So the story in the Bible is that Abram came from Mesopotamia. What does archaeology have to say about this? There will be many junctures in this story in which the story of the Bible and the story that archaeology tells us will intertwine in interesting ways, both in confirming and contradicting one another. At this point, though, there is nothing very controversial in suggesting that the father, the forefather of Judaism in the form of Abram the herdsman came out of Mesopotamia and into Canaan. We have seen these migrations before in various directions. However, this is a, is a good point to introduce competing theories about the organic origins of the religion, which continues to today as modern Judaism in its various varied forms. According to the Bible, the Jews came out of Egypt after a sojourn there and established themselves in Canaan after a bloody conquest. That story will be related in brief during this episode, and I will 
finish with the ascension of King Solomon to the throne of all Israel, putatively the high point of Jewish nationalism in the ancient world. Things will never be that good again for the Israelites. However, there is a competing belief that Judaism is organic to Canaan, that it developed out of the Canaanite religions there. When one reads through the Bible, this possibility makes itself apparent. While the story of the 40-year journey through the wilderness before reaching Canaan is very compelling, it is noted that the so-called conquest of Israel is never really complete, not as laid out in the text anyway. The land is apportioned to the 12 tribes, but even the biblical writers admit that many regions are not fully conquered, and it seems like a stretch to imagine that all the other tribal regions were fully subjugated and converted to the invaders' religion, which makes it seem like the religion was at least influenced by local, already existing religions, and the writers of the historical books of the Bible, books such as Judges and Samuel and Kings, the writers of these books constantly make references to the Canaanites still living in the land and God's great displeasure at this. More than one researcher has suggested that these Canaanites were very numerous and probably contributed a great deal to the resulting religion that became known in later centuries as Judaism. As of yet, there is very little evidence for the Exodus, but we will come to that in a moment. In the meantime, I simply want to establish that there will be a biblical perspective offered on each segment of the Israelite story, as well as an archaeological one. The reason I include the biblical tale is not to proselytize, but to present, as faithfully as possible, the narrative that will drive and determine much of Western history over the next few thousand years. During the Greek and Roman periods, the beliefs of some tribes living in the central highlands of Canaan will have very little impact on the culture and history of the world. After the death of Christ, though, the spread of the Christian religion will make knowledge of the Bible necessary in order to have any understanding of Western history, even contemporary history. As for the archaeological version of events, this is a fairly new opportunity to investigate the past. Prior to the 19th century, really, ancient documents were the only resource available to students of history when it came to thinking about the past. And while ancient documents are a good resource, they were all written by people with biases and prejudices and agendas. While archaeological finds do not speak to us with the same clarity as written documents, they are advantageous in that their perspective is neutral and definitive on any given topic. Archaeology does an excellent job of telling us what was going on at any period in the past, even if it cannot tell us why it was going on. Now, getting back to Abram. Abram's character, that is, the quality of his character, is rather interesting, to say the least. Shortly after we are introduced to this founding father of Judaism, this patriarch, in that same 12th chapter in which God assures Abram of many blessings due to his faithfulness, in that same chapter, Abram travels on to Egypt after only briefly visiting Canaan, the land promised to him by his God. He leaves Canaan due to famine and goes to Egypt in search of opportunity for his animals to graze, apparently. Before arriving in Egypt proper, Abram makes a strange deal with his wife, Sarai. She too will also undergo a name change later and become Sarah. Since his wife is so beautiful, Abram fears that he will be killed so that his wife may be taken. Therefore, he makes her agree to identify as his sister so that any malefactors might see that she is available and not feel it necessary to kill him in order to have her. This, in fact, happens a few verses later. The Pharaoh himself sees her beauty and takes her into his court as his wife. Later, God punishes the land with plagues, and Pharaoh, somehow aware of his error, returns Abraham's wife to her husband and scolds our hero for having deceived him and caused the plagues. 
Now, the idea that God would punish you for doing something which you did not even know was evil, as happened here with the Pharaoh, is a topic that we will come back to in a later episode. But the important point that I want to make here regards Abram's rather liberal use of his wife, to whom he is otherwise clearly devoted, as the rest of the text shows. In fact, later in the text, Abram does the exact same thing with another king, loans him his wife under the false pretense that they are really brother and sister. That king, named Abimelech, is also threatened with punishment by God unless he returns the woman to her husband. These passages definitely set a tone and a pattern for the heroes of the Bible. They are all quite human, quite fallible, doing things which the expressly stated laws set forth in Scripture explicitly rule out. Not only does Aram loan out his wife to save his own skin, he actually makes a profit, as he does when the king of Egypt gives him slaves, camels, and other animals in exchange for the woman. Now, there is an endless amount of theology in the dozen or so chapters devoted to Abram's life in the book of Genesis, but this is not a theology podcast, so I will limit myself to some key points that will have an impact on Western thought. In chapter 14, Abram rescues his nephew Lot, who has been captured during a battle between various Canaanite kings, among them the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. In a well-studied passage, Abram receives a blessing from a Melchizedek, who is both king of Salem, presumably the city that will later be the capital of Israel, Jerusalem, and he is also a high priest of God Most High, a translation of the words El Elyon, an appellation of the God of Israel as well. His name, Melchizedek's name, means King of Peace. The blessing of Melchizedek involves a ceremony in which bread and wine are consumed, an interesting likeness to the later Christian ceremony surrounding the Eucharist. Now, in chapter 15, God begins to solve a pressing issue for his servant Abram, to whom he has promised land and blessings for his progeny forever. The problem is that Abram has no children. This is also a recurring theme in biblical literature, childless marriages and mysterious or unexpected births. In chapter 15, Abram's wife seems to give up on the hope of having a child as she has become too old and insists that Abram have intercourse with one of her servants to produce a child. The union is successful, and Abram's first son, Ishmael, is born. In the following chapters, Abram continues to demonstrate his fidelity to the Lord by undergoing circumcision at the age of 90. And in return, God changes his name from Abram to Abraham, changing the meaning, apparently, from exalted father to father of nations, which is all very grandiose for a man who has only one son, and that son through a servant. Perhaps the greatest event of Abraham's life occurs when he is visited by three strangers. They come to his encampment, and he seems to understand right away that they are special. In fact, one of them is God himself. Abraham sends his wife to prepare a fine meal for the strangers. While they visit together, the Lord reveals to Abraham that he will soon destroy Sodom and Gomorrah due to their exceedingly great wickedness. Abraham is appalled by his deity's intentions. He is going to completely destroy, destroy these two cities? What about the good men that may live among the wicked, Abraham asks. In a conversational pattern that distinguishes biblical writing, God and Abraham negotiate the terms under which the cities may be destroyed. God suggests that 50 innocent men among the wicked would be enough to deter his wrath. Abraham works him down to just 10 good men, and the Lord leaves him with a promise to be merciful if there are just those 10 good men living in Sodom and Gomorrah. Before the Lord leaves the encampment, he also leaves with another promise, one which Abraham and his wife find hard to believe, that the two of them will have a son together, 
though Sarah is already old, and Abraham beyond 100 years in age. In fact, it is in this passage in which Sarah acquires her new name. God renames her after she laughs at the idea that she will become pregnant. Unfortunately for the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, there are not ten such good men among them, and the cities are destroyed by fire from the sky. Abraham's nephew Lot and his family are rescued from this doom shortly before the heavens rain down on the cities. A lewd story, not uncommon in this portion of the Bible, follows in which Lot has intercourse with his daughters and produces sons whom the Bible states will become the ancestors of the Moabites and the Ammonites. Since these were the enemies of the Israelites, modern scholars see this story as a convenient way to give Israel's enemies an embarrassing past. Finally, Abraham's son, Isaac, is born, and he is circumcised on the eighth day of his life, according to the newly created custom, one which will endure for thousands of years down to the present among observant Jews. In the chapter following his legitimate son's birth, however, Abraham, now nearing the end of life and having seen his own son grown to youth, Abraham gets a terrible surprise and challenge from the Lord. His God tells him to take Isaac, his only legitimate son, up onto Mount Moriah, a site which will become in later years the location of the Temple of Solomon. And God tells him that on that mountaintop, he is to sacrifice his son. Spoiler alert for those who have not read the Bible, Abraham does not kill his son, but he certainly prepares to do so, possibly an imitation of sacrificial rites already customary in Canaan at this time. In an earlier episode about the Phoenicians, I went into the belief that the Phoenicians and other Canaanites practiced child sacrifice. Anyway, just as Abraham is about to slay his one and only legitimate son on a sacrificial pyre, God tells him to stop. Impressed with Abraham's no-hold-bards faithfulness to his God, the Lord confirms a perpetual blessing on his servant's posterity. There are some subsequent and additional details to the life of Abraham, and we will return to some of these passages in future podcasts, but for the sake of brevity, we can say that Abraham dies a contented man after this, at the ripe old age of 175, with his son installed as his successor. Now, such long life ages are characteristic of biblical heroes in the early chapters of Genesis, with some ancestors living as long as 900 plus years. Abraham, however, is the last man to live so long. His descendants will have decreasing lifespans over the next few generations. By the time of the Exodus, with the exception of Moses, who lives to be 120 years old, men and women will live what we consider to be a normal number of years. The rest of the book of Genesis is also interesting in multiple ways, historically and theologically, but we can summarize it a little more easily now that we've established the foundations of the story with Abraham. His descendants experience numerous adventures and encounters with beings divine. Genesis 24 is also a touching story about marriage between Isaac, Abraham's heir, and Rebekah, a cousin still living in Mesopotamia. Rebekah gives birth to twin sons, Esau and Jacob, in another story involving complicated births and unexpected ascensions. Remember that Ishmael was Abraham's first son with his servant, but it was his second son, Isaac, who received his father's inheritance. Just so in this new generation, it will be Jacob who came out of the womb after his brother Esau, it will be Jacob who ultimately ultimately succeeds in life after many an adventure. He marries two sisters and has children through them and through their female servants until he, ama- until he amasses 12 sons and a single daughter. Finally, when this Jacob is old, and Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, 
and now he's known by the name Israel after another divine renaming. Israel and his family migrate to Egypt during a famine. Again, the details of this story are compelling, but I do not intend to turn the podcast into a retelling of the Bible. The text is there for those who want to know more, but this migration into Egypt brings us to the end of the book of Genesis. It is an unexpected ending, but not unlike the rest of scripture. The entire book has built us up to understand that Canaan is the land intended for the people of Israel. But here they are, at the end of the book, leaving the promised land for Egypt in a sort of ancient cliffhanger. the story of the exodus from Egypt. Before we continue, however, I want to introduce a couple of terms and explain their meaning within the context of this podcast. They are special words, and I will be using them throughout all the series of this podcast for years to come. The terms of which I speak are the words myth and mythos. Myth, M-Y-T-H, and mythos, M-Y-T-H-O-S. Just as I speak of Greek and Babylonian myths, I will also speak of Jewish and Christian myths. However, and unfortunately, the word myth has come to be synonymous in the modern mind with the word lie or falsehood, but that is not the meaning of the word, not in this context. Socrates, the Greek genius, is known to have stated that as he grew older, he spent more time pondering myths. This does not mean that he was pondering lies fruitlessly. No, that is not what he meant by myth. By this term, he meant the stories of his cultural background. He knew that in the stories of his culture, there were great truths to be discovered. He was not viewing them through a lens, not trying to determine fact and falsehood. Rather, he was interested in the truths that they might tell him. And in this podcast, anyway, I will use the word myth to refer to the dominating stories of all religions and cultures. I do not intend to slight or insult any religious tradition when I do this. I identify myself as being nominally Christian, or within Christian culture anyway, a sort of bad Catholic, but I will still refer to Christian myth and the Christian mythos, the latter phrase referring to the entire corpus, the whole atmosphere of the stories and rituals and practices used in the various Christian religions. So properly here, I will make reference reference to Exodus as a Jewish myth, not to cast doubt on its historicity, but in order to speak of it in the same terms used to describe the beliefs and stories of other religious systems. However, I will also discuss ongoing debates about the book's value as a historical document. But referring to the story of Moses and Israel's sojourn in the Sinai Desert as myth is not part of that discussion. It is merely a useful term to describe a class of religious story common to all cultures. So, back to the Exodus. Most likely, people of all backgrounds in the West already know something of the Exodus, the basic story anyway. A man named Moses, guided by God himself, leads the entire people of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land, Canaan. Plus or minus a few details, that really is the gist of the story. Moses himself does not actually enter the promised land with Israel, but that is the idea. One of the key details of the Exodus myth is the idea that the Jews were slaves in Egypt. Sometimes, in the popular imagination, they are thought to have participated in building the pyramids. That is probably an anachronism, because the pyramids were all built before the Jews would most likely have been in Egypt, since they were most likely inhabitants of New Kingdom Egypt, but who knows. 
The text only states that they were slaves in construction, and it does not mention the pyramids. Certainly in the New Kingdom, as we have already seen, there was a great deal of construction going on up and down the Nile. More worthy of a critical eye in this case is the idea of slavery. Some have tried to cast doubt on the validity of the Exodus myth by dispelling the idea that the Hebrew laborers were slaves, by inferring that they were actually artisans and skilled craftsmen paid for their work. I am not sure actually that these ideas are really contradictory. I mentioned in a previous podcast episode when considering slavery in Egypt that in some ways everyone was a slave in Egypt because the pharaoh was a god. You might not be classed as a slave, but you did not have the rights of a free man or woman as you might in a modern society. You had to do what you were told, no matter what, unless you were part of the very small ruling class of royalty and priests. Further complicating the matter is the idea that slavery really can't be reduced to simply meaning working for no wages or having no status in society. Many slaves in ancient times were very powerful. Some came to be administrators in and even rulers over their own countries, as happened in Muslim Egypt in the Middle Ages and among the Janissaries of the Ottoman Empire. I will leave the topic simply by pointing out that trying to resolve the question of the slavery of the Jews in Egypt is a task not worth attempting. It is arguing technicalities. The point is that the Jews look back on their time in Egypt as a time in which they were not able to act with the freedom that they desired, and that collectively they felt a calling, a destiny, that lay beyond the confines of Egypt. In the story, the Pharaoh is the one trying to prevent the accomplishment of their cultural dream, and Moses is the guru, the teacher or master who points the way for them. I will relate some of the historical and archaeological difficulties with this idea later, but for the time being, let us consider the cultural myth presented by the biblical story of the Exodus. The Exodus is part story about a collective, that is Israel, and part story about a hero, that is Moses. The focus initially is really on Moses. He experiences a miraculous birth of sorts. The nameless pharaoh of the myth has become frightened of the numbers of the Hebrews living in Egypt. This pharaoh does not remember Joseph, as the text states. Joseph, having been a previous Jewish hero in the book of Genesis, who rose from the status of prisoner to the, become the right-hand man of a previous pharaoh. This new pharaoh, however, does not remember how valuable the Hebrews have been to Egypt and begins to oppress them. Fearing their numbers, he instructs the midwives of the kingdom to kill every male child born among the Hebrews and only let the girls live. While there is resistance to this and the Hebrews do find ways to evade a massacre, nevertheless, it is a dangerous time. The mother of baby Moses, fearing for him, sets him in a basket and gives him to the Nile River. A desperate deed, since not only might the waters claim the boy, but the ever-present crocodiles as well. Moses is fortunate, however, and the basket holding him is retrieved from the river by the daughter of the Pharaoh, who adopts him. Moses thus escapes an early death, and is instead raised in the Egyptian royal household. Now there are two significant points of connection between this story of Moses' birth and other stories that I have recounted, which bear pointing out. Listeners may recall that Sargon the Great, first ruler of the Akkadian Empire, which followed the Sumerian, Sargon was also placed in a basket in the river and rescued by a member of the royal household. As, as Joseph Campbell famously pointed out, most heroes are born in mysterious or miraculous ways, and... So it is with Moses. But there is another important connection that this story forms within the Hebrew mythos. Many Bible readers, reading as they are in translation, 
do not know that the word used to describe the basket in the original Hebrew is the same word used to describe the ark in the story of Noah's flood. Thus, the writer of the story appears to be making a very clear point. Just as the human race was saved by an ark in the days of Noah, so also is the human race saved when Moses is preserved by another ark. Again, we reach a point in the text of the Hebrew scriptures in which it would be easy to write entire books about the theology, both explicit and hidden in the text. The story of God's love not only for his people, but also for Moses as an individual is a very interesting one, but not something that we have time for here. Let me sum up by saying that Moses, though raised an Egyptian, becomes concerned for the people of his blood, his culture of origin, and eventually he ends up slaying an Egyptian in defense of a Hebrew brother, and he goes into exile in the, des in the desert to escape punishment. Now, Moses performs another classic and hero's endeavor, just as Joseph Campbell explains in his numerous studies of ancient myths and heroes. Moses does not rise easily to his ultimate position of power and knowledge. First, he must suffer and endure, as he does in the desert for 40 years, where he starts in exile with nothing and rises to become a respectable member of the local society. Other heroes from other cultures must undergo the same experiences of humility, as we will see when we come to heroes such as Hercules among the Greeks, or the god Odin among the Norse. All or nearly all cultures seem to teach that great power, position, knowledge, and wisdom are only achieved through suffering, through an arduous climb, rather than instant elevation. While we can detect many similarities between Moses as hero and the heroes of other ancient cultures, there is one way in which Hebrew heroes clearly stand out. It is typical of other heroes, Gilgamesh, Heracles, and Theseus, for example, to demonstrate tremendous strength and or prowess in combat. Hebrew heroes are unique in that they are more typically being exalted for, by their chroniclers for their piety, for their faith, for their obedience to God, rather than for stereotypical masculine achievements. Recall the story of Abraham, which I just recounted. Only once in the 12 or so chapters devoted to him in the Bible do we see him engage in physical combat. And there is nothing spectacular about that. No hard-to-do or hard-to-believe feat of strength or skill. Just the military readiness expected of any tribal leader. In the story of Moses, there is also a brief mention of his engaging in physical struggles, first against an Egyptian harming one of his fellow Hebrews in Egypt, and then when he comes to the Sinai, des Sinai Desert and protects the daughters of a local priest, his future wife among them, from some rowdy shepherds at a communal well where they wanted to draw water for their flock. But aside from these pedestrian acts of valor, Moses is recognized primarily for his faithfulness to his God, for his willingness to face down a powerful temporal ruler like the Pharaoh in order to obey his God. Again and again throughout the Bible, we will see the same heroic archetype. Many of these heroes will possess some prominent physical aspect of heroism, but they are never remembered for such. Instead, they are rem remembered for their faithfulness, just as Abraham was rewarded for his faithfulness and not for any other aspect of his character. More on those other heroes later. Let's finish with Moses and the Exodus. Now, <clears throat> Moses learns of his special selection of being chosen by God when he encounters a burning bush while out with the herds of his father-in-law. He sees a bush burning, but not consumed by the presumably spiritual flames which dance amidst its branches and leaves. He approaches, and a voice admonishes him to remove his sandals, for the ground where he walks is holy. What ensues is a powerful, divine call to action. 
the Lord reminds Moses of the plight of Israel in captivity in Egypt, and he commands him to go to their rescue in the name of God, to speak directly to Pharaoh and to demand their release. In addition, in this brief scene in chapter 3 of the Exodus, God also reveals to Moses his true name. Yes, he is God. Yes, he is the God of the ancestors of the Israelites, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But his name is I Am, or I Am Who Am. I won't delve too deep into the theology behind this revelation to Moses, since this is not a theology podcast again, but the Hebrew word for the name of God, translated into English as I Am, is Yahweh, a name already introduced in this text, also known as the Tetragrammaton, which means four letters in Greek. Apparently, the sounds made by the name Yahweh are the same as the sounds in this phrase, I am, in Hebrew, and they certainly express the clear monotheism to which Israel will eventually adhere. This is not just the God of war, or of fertility, or of the mountains, or the desert. This God is fundamental being itself. He is the one who is. This perception of their God will move future Israelites, such as the prophets and John the Baptist and Jesus, to demonstrate their faith in creative and spiritual and sacrificial ways. Moses hesitates to participate in the rescue of his people, apparently reminding God that he has a speech impediment of some sort, that he is slow of speech and tongue, as the biblical text says, and he will not know how to speak to Pharaoh. No matter... God appoints Moses' brother, Aaron, still in Egypt, to be his right-hand man and spokesperson. Together, God insists, they will attempt to convince the Pharaoh to release Israel from bondage and let them leave the land. Many listeners are perhaps familiar with the subsequent details. Moses goes back to Egypt. Pharaoh repeatedly refuses to release the Israelites, and he and the rest of Egypt first witness minor miracles, such as the changing of Aaron's staff into a snake, and then they experience one terrible plague after another. Locust swarms, pestilence, hailstorms, terrible darkness, a total of ten in all. The final tenth plague comes when Pharaoh has already given way a little bit, agreeing to permit the Israelites to go into the desert to worship their God according to their own rites, but not allowing them to take their herds and flocks with them. This is not enough, because the Israelites, in an apparent deceitfulness permitted by God, actually have no intention of returning from their desert trip. They will only settle for taking everything with them. And so Pharaoh refuses once again. And God, speaking to Moses, promises to send the most terrible plague of all, himself. At midnight, I will go forth through Egypt. Every firstborn in this land shall die from the firstborn of the pharaoh on the throne to the firstborn of the slave girl at the handmill, as well as the firstborn of all the animals. Then there shall be loud wailing throughout the land, such as there has never been, nor will ever be again. But among the Israelites and their animals, not even a dog shall growl, so that you may know how the Lord distinguishes between the Egyptians and the Israelites. From the 11th chapter of the book of Exodus. And so it happens. The firstborn children throughout Egypt, except those of the Israelites, die that night. And Pharaoh relents, and the Israelites are allowed to leave the land. Miraculous events do not stop with the plagues. Moses and the children of Israel make the famous Red Sea crossing, in which the sea parts, and the escaping refugees walk the ocean floor in safety to the Sinai Peninsula. The ocean closes behind them, destroying the pursuing army of the Pharaoh. 
The 12 tribes of Israel, named after the descendants of Jacob, Abraham's grandson, spent 40 years in the desert. There they experienced more wonders of God, such as the pillar of fire in the sky that guards them by night, and which appears as a pillar of cloud to lead them through the wilderness by day. And God comes down on a mountain to speak directly with Moses, after which the Israelites decide to craft and worship an idol, a golden calf. And a number of them are slaughtered by the tribe of priests in divine revenge for this infidelity to their savior. And water that springs from a rock and manna and quail that fall from the sky, providing the tribes with daily bread and meat. And there are sundry other miraculous events over the course of those 40 years. Now, if you have not read the account, you might wonder why it took 40 years to travel from Egypt to Canaan, a trip that would only take a matter of days or weeks, even on foot today. The books of Exodus and Leviticus, the second and third books of the Bible, cover the events of the journey for presumably less than a year, as the community spends some time receiving law from God through Moses and his brother Aaron and constructing the Ark of the Covenant, in which the stone tablets containing the Ten Commandments will be placed. They also construct a large mobile tent in which God will make his dwelling at every stop of the journey, and in which Moses and the priests will presumably perform the rites of worship. Finally, in the book of Numbers, the Israelites make an attempt to enter Canaan from the south. After scouting the land for 40 days, they are pleased by the sight of fertile land, rich with crops. But they are also dismayed by the apparent size and ferocity of the inhabitants. For their doubts, for their failure of confidence in a God who has already worked multiple wonders for them, the Lord sentences the people to a 40-year sojourn in the wilderness. This is understood as a sufficient length of time for a generation of adults to die away. As the Lord states, not one of this generation will see the promised land. This includes Moses and his brother Aaron. The Israelites try to seize Canaan after that, but to no avail. Their attack fails, and they resume wandering in the Sinai and in in the desert lands south and east of Canaan. Forty years after the departure from Egypt, in the area of ancient Israel known as the Transjordan, on the mountains east of the River Jordan, Moses stands and views the promised land. Now 120 years old, he is the last of the generation that left Egypt. Before dying, in the book of Deuteronomy, he reviews all that God has done for his people and then appoints his successors. The Israelites then enter the land and assault its major cities. This event is known as the conquest of Israel, but it really is not a complete conquest, as I mentioned before. Even according to the text of the Bible, many Canaanites regrettably remain alive and in place in various locations after the Israelites settle down. A period known as the time of the judges follows, and yes, I am summarizing in the extreme here and skipping over a great deal of content, but there would not be enough time in the world to discuss all the events and the theological meanings found in the Bible. Now, the judges are apparently local heroes, memorialized by individual tribes, usually for their military feats against Canaanites and other foreigners. The most famous of the judges is probably Samson. Earlier, I mentioned how most of the Jewish Jewish heroes were renowned for their faith, not for their physical strength. Samson, however, is mostly an exception to this rule. He is very much a Hebrew Hercules, killing swaths of Israel's most hated enemies, the Philistines, with his bare hands. He dies in an act of self-sacrifice after suffering terrible torture and humiliation when he he uses his superhuman strength to bring down a Philistine temple onto himself and onto his enemies. Finally, after many years of living in the promised land in a kind of loose confederacy of tribes, the people of Israel unite to call for a king. And that begins a new era in the history of Israel. 
Before I get into that, though, I want to look back over this story of the Exodus and the violent arrival into Canaan through the eyes of archaeology. The story of the Exodus is dramatic and compelling, but there is no archaeological evidence that anything like it ever happened. Its logistical plausibility is not only supplemented, supplemented by miracles, it is dependent on them. At no time in recent human history was the Sinai Peninsula capable of supporting significant amounts of life in a me even a meager way. There is no record of significant human occupation of it. The Israelites, indeed, would have required manna from the sky in order to live there because there is nothing else to eat. The same goes for the water from the rock story. There, is, there aren't sufficient water sources for this number of people. And according to the Bible, there were 600,000 men in this traveling body of refugees, suggesting a complete community of some two million souls on the move and foraging in this bare desert. There is no way that such a body could have survived without miraculous intervention. And this is probably true of any environment on Earth. Such a population could have only been sustained by living over a large area and practicing agriculture. There are numerous other facts which suggest that the story of the Exodus cannot be accepted as a whole. Perhaps there were, was a smaller Exodus or a series of smaller Exoduses. Without divine intervention, on a massive scale, it could not have happened as described. The book of Joshua is the sixth book in the Bible, and it begins with the Israelites finally moving into Canaan and taking it by force. The first city to fall is Jericho. This city has been taken and sacked over the course of its long history many times. Listeners may recall that Jericho is one of the first proto-cities to appear in the Near East some nine or 10,000 years ago. It is not completely implausible to suggest that the Israelites captured the city when they invaded, even if we discount the miraculous way in which they seize it in the book of Joshua, blowing their horns until the city's formidable walls crumble. But beyond that, there is no sign that a group of Egyptian refugees entered and conquered Canaan in the second millennium BC, or at any other time. Furthermore, the religion of the Israelites is very obviously related to the religions of the other Canaanites at this time all of them worshiping a god named El, as God is called multiple times in the Bible. Another historian makes an excellent point about Egypt in the mid-2nd millennium BC that also impacts the Exodus as described in the Bible. During most of this time period, Egypt controlled Canaan, so the escaping Israelites would have been fleeing Egypt in order to go live in, well, Egypt. In fact, not only does the archaeological evidence suggest that the religion of the early Hebrews was just another Canaanite religion, it even suggests that it was not monotheistic, perhaps not even henotheistic. Idols, strictly forbidden by the commandments of both El and his wife, a female deity, have been uncovered during digs into this time period and later. And the dietary laws evident in these ruins were not the laws that are given to the Jews in the desert prior to the so-called invasion. The law forbids the consumption of pork, but there are pig bones found throughout the archaeological record in this area well into the first millennium BC, long after the supposed settlement of the land, though it is true that there are fewer pig bones found in the areas traditionally considered to be centers of ancient Judaism. Certainly, it should not be forgotten, there are things about the ancient Hebrew religion that stand out. The prohibition of human sacrifice would have definitely set it apart from typical Canaanite practice. Though even the Bible shows traces of such customs among the Jews, such as when the hero or judge of Israel, a man named Jephthah, sacrifices his daughter. And its gradual move towards monotheism is also certainly distinct. Now, from a purely archaeological standpoint, the Jewish religion appears to have developed out of a local mythos. 
This is not reason to discard study of it as simply one more Canaanite religion. In fact, it is very interesting how the religion of the Hebrews slowly distinguished itself from that of the other Canaanites in terms of monotheism, ritual practice, dietary law, and most of all, in its dogged persistence in the face of political and military defeat, exile and diaspora, and the conquest of one global superpower after another. Lacking physical evidence of the Exodus story, nevertheless, scholars are compelled to think that there must be some kernel of truth in it. It just seems unlikely, first of all, that any Canaanite would simply come up with such a story to explain their origins for no reason. And secondly, it's hard to believe that anyone would, anyone would buy it if it did not, in fact, have some basis in truth. As I mentioned before, when discussing the experience of the Hyksos in Egypt, some scholars see the Exodus story as a reinterpretation of events from the mid-2nd second millennium BC, when the Exodus story would have happened according to biblical timelines. Perhaps the Exodus story is an explanation, made many generations after the fact, of how the Hyksos, who were fellow Semites, if not in fact Hebrews themselves, how they rose to power in Egypt, and then later were reduced to slavery and finally exile. Perhaps there were multiple exoduses, and with Moses, Aaron, Joshua, Caleb, and others mentioned as companions in the text of the Bible, possibly being the individual leaders of their own migrations. And certainly also there is an interesting tie between the extreme monotheistic beliefs of Judaism and the similar extreme beliefs of Pharaoh Akhenaten, described in the last episode. And Akhenaten also ruled around the time that the exodus might have happened. It is fascinating to think that refugees to Canaan might have brought this monotheism with them. Fascinating, even plausible, but not in any way proven by the historical and archaeological record. Nevertheless, however the Israelites came to be in Canaan, by some time after 1100 BC, during the height of the Bronze Age collapse, after the Sea Peoples had brought global order to its knees and one branch of those raiders had established themselves in the coast of Canaan as the Philistines, several tribes of the composite that would become known as Israel came together and chose a king to lead them in their conflicts, probably directly as a result of the depredations of the Philistines. And that brings us to the next study, to the next segment of our study of ancient Israel, the time of the kings. The judges of Israel were men and women who exerted temporary influence over portions of Israel, not really holding an actual office, but simply being someone to whom the people looked in times of crisis. Typically, they were military leaders, but there were exceptions. Deborah was an early prophetess and judge of Israel. The last judge of Israel was also a prophet. His name was Samuel. He also is born in special circumstances, as good heroes should be, being born to a mother who was previously infertile. Raised among priests in Shiloh, a holy shrine in Israel before Solomon's temple was built, Samuel experienced visions from God at an early age. By the time he was an adult, he was known throughout the land for his keen insight into the will of God. Distressed by the depredations of surrounding non-Israelites, especially the Philistines, the people of the land clamor for a king. They want to be like other nations instead of just a collection of tribes related by blood and culture. They desire union and a strong leader. Samuel protests at first. He reminds them that a king will have certain rights, that he will demand service from them and tax them, that he will lord it over them, so to speak. But these warnings go unheeded. 
The people are adamant in their demand for a king. So Samuel promises to find one among them who shall be their king. He finds a man named Saul and appoints him king over all Israel. I said appoints, but perhaps I should have said anoints, because the sign of kingship comes when Samuel pours oil over Saul's head. Saul is accepted by the people and quickly assumes his role as military leader and engages with foreign enemies, in particular the Ammonites and the Philistines. These, there are initial successes against the Philistines, who were better armed and armored than the Israelites. Prior to one particular battle, a giant man steps forth from the enemy lines and challenges all Israel to set forth a champion to fight him. If the giant wins, Israel will submit to the Philistines. If the giant loses, the Philistines will agree to serve Israel. The name of this giant is Goliath, and you may already be familiar with the story. A youth named David, serving as King Saul's armor-bearer, comes forward to challenge the Philistine champion. With his simple sling, he drives a stone into the giant's forehead, bringing him down. Then David uses Goliath's own sword to cut off his head. David gains more fame as time passes, becoming the most renowned of Saul's military leaders. Naturally, as happens in nearly every relationship between political ruler and military leader, the king becomes suspicious of his general's ambition. Eventually, David has to become a fugitive to escape the king's wrath, leading a band of loyal warriors, evading the king of Israel, and sometimes serving with Israel's enemies. After some time on the run, David defeats the king in battle. Initially, he, David, is proclaimed as as king over just the southern tribe of Judah. The Israelites to the north choose their own king in the wake of Saul's loss, but David quickly defeats this king in battle as well and becomes king over all the Israelites. He rules for 40 years, most of that time from Jerusalem, which is not conquered by the Israelites until David takes the city. Now, I've left out many adventures of David, many interesting things about his reign, because I, I, again, I do not want to turn this podcast into, into an exegetical review of the Bible text. Instead, let it suffice to say that David rules long and well, for the most part. While he is remembered as Israel's most beloved king, the biblical writer is not afraid to point out his flaws. David really liked women. He had several wives, and they were not enough for him when he spied Bathsheba, the wife of one of his army officers, bathing herself in full view of his window. He had his way with her, and when he learned that he had impregnated her, he arranged for her husband, Uriah, to be given the most dangerous role in a coming battle, and, as David desired, Uriah is killed in combat, leaving him free to take Bathsheba as his new wife. David is upbraided for this by his court prophet, Nathan, but he repents and God forgives him his errors and promises him that even with this great sin behind him, his line will continue to rule over Israel forever. Finally, King David dies and he is succeeded by one of his many sons. In fact, his successor is Solomon, the child that he conceived with Bathsheba, the woman that David stole from Uriah. Solomon goes on to become the richest and most powerful king of Israel. He builds a grand temple in Jerusalem, which becomes the new focal point for Jewish worship. Now, the history of Israel as found in the Bible continues, but I'm going to leave the remainder of that material for the next episode, which will cover the history of Assyria and Babylon into the first millennium BC. With the remaining time today, I want to return to the perspective of secular history with regard to the ancient kingdom of Israel. Now, for many years, following the Enlightenment in the 18th century, the books of the Bible were viewed with a great deal of suspicion, especially with regard to their historical value. 
After some time, it became almost an assumption on the part of many that the events described therein, from creation through the time of Jesus Christ, were almost entirely fictional. This preconception received some support when archaeology and other historical sciences began to reveal that the actual timelines of many events in the Bible and the names of rulers were often inaccurate. However, over the course of the 20th century, the pendulum began to swing the other way. Consistently, archaeological digs have surfaced finds that support events described in the Bible, especially with regard to the historical books, that is, those that describe the history after its founding by refugees from Egypt. In some ways, this should not be surprising. While the early books of the Bible may make claims that are hard to be accepted by rational minds in the modern era, such as creation, Adam and Eve, the flood of Noah, the parting of the Red Sea, and so on, the later historical books, those describing the ups and downs of the kings of Israel, are actually almost boring in their historical detail. These kings suffer mundane problems, fight the usual internecine battles amongst themselves, betray their brothers, their wives, die deaths both dignified and undignified, and the length of their reigns are very detailed and very believable. Reigns of six and one-half years or just two years are noted in the text. Nowhere do we see people living beyond normal human age ranges. No one rules for thousands of years. No, the books of the kings in the Bible actually appear to be fairly trustworthy documents with regard to events, even if the author's interpretation of those events, as being often caused by the will of God, may be disputed by the modern reader. And archaeology increasingly supports the historical validity of these works. So we can be fairly confident in the belief that the early Israelites occupied these lands beginning sometime around the year 1200 BC, if not before. And there is support for the idea that this kingdom was ruled by a royal house named after its progenitor, David. An inscription found in 1993 in Israel proclaims the house of David and dates back to the 9th century BC. Other finds from surrounding lands provide statements to corroborate the biblical text, such as the Moabite stone, in which a foreigner describes an alliance with a specific king of Israel, Jehoram, and this alliance and this king are also described in the Bible. The list of archaeological confirmations goes on. But what of the religion? Truth be told, the actual history of Israel is only barely significant for understanding the history of the West. Instead, the religion which developed in this land, especially during the thousand years prior to the birth of Christ, will have the most important impact on our Western traditions. As I have stated before, the Jewish religion developing before our eyes on the pages of the Bible and the historical books certainly seems to be related to the religion of the Canaanites. Scholars suspect that the unspoken portrayal of the kingdom as a monolithic culture of Jewish believers is probably inaccurate to one degree or another. Or another. The biblical writers make frequent references to royal and priestly irritation at the people attending religious rites at the high places. Probably the Temple of Solomon was dedicated to Yahweh, the personal god of David and his family, and succeeding rulers were upset that people clung to the various gods of the Canaanites and still worshipped at the altars upon hilltops and mountaintops and in sacred groves. Their idols were worshipped and human sacrifice was at least sometimes practiced. Truly, it may be inaccurate to depict the population of the kingdom as composed of Jews and Canaanites. Rather, they were all Canaanites, and the people who would become known later as the Jews were a religious group that slowly separated themselves from the rights and beliefs of their neighbors, adhering to the national religion proclaimed by David and his descendants, much as Akhenaten did in Egypt. The priests of the Temple of Solomon were 
perhaps less successful in the short term when compared to Akhenaten's efforts, but more successful in the long term because the god of Moses and David would eventually defeat, in religious battle, the gods of the Canaanites, whereas the old gods of Egypt quickly resumed their place of prominence after the death of Akhenaten, though they had been completely banned during his lifetime. Now, what did this religion, however it came to be, what did it bequeath to Western history, to our Western traditions? So far, we have heard of the pantheons of the Mesopotamians, the Egyptians, and a little bit about those of the Hittites and the Cretans, but those pantheons have really just provided us with interesting stories and only occasionally with any points of contact with our own culture. Judaism, however, the religion, has provided Western culture with numerous distinctive markers. Let us begin with monotheism itself. Europe, the heartland of our Western traditions, was never Jewish. It was converted to Christianity in the centuries following the birth of Christ. However, Christianity brought with it a zeal for one God, albeit in the form of a hard-to-define trinity, more on that in a later episode, and, and, and it tolerated no other companions for God. Christianity would allow certain customs and ideas from European religions, such as Greek and Roman mythology, Norse religions, and Druidism and the Irish the Irish pantheon, Christianity would allow some aspects of these religions to survive, for instance, in naming the days of the week or the names of the planets. However, no god or spiritual entity of pagan religions would be allowed to compete with Jesus the Christ or to share in his glory, and we can probably attribute this zeal for such an exclusionary approach to Judaism, from which Christianity derived. True, the case can be made for some of the early saints of Christianity being little more than reinterpreted gods of the pagans, but again, the point is still valid. In prior arrangements, such as with the Romans, a conquering a conquered people would simply accept the validity of the, of the conquered people's gods or assimilate them into their own religion. Recall my mention of the worship of Isis, an Egyptian goddess in imperial Rome. No such accommodation would ever be made in Europe in Western history. It was Yahweh or the highway. Furthermore, the great stories of the Bible, such as the Flood, the Exodus, David and Goliath, and so on, would become so ingrained in public thought that they are recognizable even to people today whose families have not practiced religion for decades, if not centuries. I mentioned earlier that there was a focus in the Bible on the idea of being chosen, of being elected by God to speak for him, to accomplish something, or simply represent him. This would also play a strong role in Western society, not simply in religious matters, but in political arenas as well. Countless times through the history of the West, leaders have come forward and likened themselves to Moses, leading their people to safety, or to being a David versus a Goliath in the form of an already existing government or a king or what have you. And they will acquire these men and women in the public eye a sort of spiritual anointing, a perception of someone upon whom God has rested his favor whom the Lord has chosen to right a wrong. And this is certainly an inheritance from biblical faith. Many more cultural traits in the West will be derived from the Christian distillation of Judaism, which we will come to discuss during the third series of podcasts, which will be about the Romans. Expect that series in a couple years after the Greek series. The story of Israel is not over. We leave the kingdom at its temporal high point. Solomon is king, the land is rich, 
and the kingdom stands secure between the three realms which have faltered in recent centuries, Egypt in the west, the Hittites in Anatolia to the north, and Mesopotamia to the east. This sweet spot in the historical timeline will not last. Once these other realms recover from the chaos caused by the assaults of the Sea Peoples, they will begin to encroach upon the borders of Israel. Worse, Solomon will be the last king to rule over a united kingdom. Soon, the two will split into northern and southern kingdoms and present even easier prey to the menacing powers in Egypt and Assyria. In the next episode, we will look at the history of Mesopotamia from about the middle of the second millennium BC to about the middle of the first millennium BC, before the Persians come and rearrange the world order to suit themselves. I will also include content on the ongoing saga of Israel, especially with regard to its division and subsequent fall to the predatory powers of Assyria and the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Until then, I thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast.